Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up to the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 5 as we continue on in our series as we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And for the sake of time today, we're just going to be jumping right in. We're just going to jump right into the text, and we have a lot to unpack here. So we're going to start looking at it here this morning. If you've been with us over the past couple of weeks, there's going to be a theme that you'll start to see Jesus develops as he begins to share in this section on the Sermon on the Mount. And he starts out some of this teaching by saying something along the lines of like, you've heard it said, but I say. And, and he talked about that just a few weeks ago when we looked at the topic of murder. And now here this morning, we're going to look at the topic of adultery, and we're going to see him talk about it in a similar way. And, and why we must understand, and just pause for a moment to recognize this, is because it's critical that Jesus is drawing our understanding to what it would be faithful followers of him to be deeper than simple outward obedience. It would be something more than just looking the part. You've heard it said, but I say. And if we jump ahead to the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 23, we see Jesus pronounce these woes or these judgment statements upon the Pharisees. And there's been plenty of times throughout the Gospels up until this point where we might think like, okay, Jesus is about to bring it here, but he, he holds back a little. And here we see in Matthew 23 that he doesn't hold back at all. And one of these woes, I think, gives us insight into this, you've heard it said, but I say mentality that Jesus is communicating here in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 23, verse 27 says this, woe to you, teachers of the law and of the Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. I think in essence, this, is, this should be our understanding of Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I say. He's not interested in a bunch of people who, who look the part, who simply look and appear as righteousness on the outside, but inwardly we are battling, and as his words would say, that we are full of everything unclean. He doesn't desire simple outward obedience to the law, but complete and total inward submission to all that he would command his followers to do, what their life would look like. And this morning we're going to be looking at the topic of adultery and lust, and how we can begin to understand this topic at a more deep uh, level in accordance with Jesus's teachings of you've heard it said, but I say. So let's look at Matthew chapter five, starting here in verse 27. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now I know that this is just uh, four verses here, but I mean, we could spend so long in this section. 
And I think at some point uh, it would merit a much greater conversation than this. But, but I do think it's important to note that we're going to breeze by a few points here and we're going to camp out for a majority of our time in verse 28. We're going to get to some of 27. We're going to get to some of those closing pieces. But as I just have been praying and, and prepping for this morning, I just have felt the Lord draw me deeper into that verse. And that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time together this morning. So would you join me in prayer and, and we'll, uh, we'll start to press in a little deeper. Lord, we, uh, we come before you and our heart, Lord, is that we want more of your heart. God, help us to see, um, help us to see the truth of your word. Help us to see, God, that you would desire what is best for us. And Lord, help us to follow all that you have for us in a way that is in accordance with your scriptures. Lord, that we would not be a church of whitewashed tombs, people who look the part or act the part, God, but that we would be a people who are devoted in every area of our life to following the teachings of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Starting in verse 27, I don't know about you, but when I come to passages like this, I often start asking myself a few questions like, okay, well, where would, his, where would this audience have heard it said this? And, and why does that seem so important to Jesus? And, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that there's a pretty significant moment. It's found in Exodus chapter 20 called the Ten Commandments. It's where God would give Moses these Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And one of those Ten Commandments, in fact, it's the seventh of the Ten Commandments, would be this statement of you shall not commit adultery. That's far from the only place it's found in the Old Testament, let alone the New Testament. It shows up in many different places. But I do think that it's significant that it shows up here because these Ten Commandments were God's way of helping his people Israel understand how they were to live in a way that was distinctly different from the cultures and the people surrounding them. That this was something that would mark the people of God as distinctly different and set apart, or in other words, holy, and in a way they would be proclaiming the goodness of God through their ability to not commit adultery. So what then is adultery? I think for our understanding this morning, essentially adultery, the way that we should understand it, is any form of extramarital affair. Whether it be a husband or a wife, when they would break the sacred bond and covenant of marriage by any sort of sexual relations with someone else outside of that covenant. I think that this begins to tell us and inform us of a few critical points. And the first would be this, that God puts an incredibly high value on the bond and the covenant of marriage. That all throughout the scripture and going all the way back to God's first utterances of commands to his people, we see that God values the sanctity of marriage. That the covenant commitment there would be something incredibly significant to the Lord. And I think the second thing that it does is it starts to help us infer that the reality of sex is something incredibly powerful and best reserved for the beautiful sanctity and covenant of marriage. Because there's something about exercising that powerful act outside of that covenant that would seem to disrupt what God would have intended for his people. So you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Verse 28 says this, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We see here in verse 28 that this topic of adultery is still the primary point that Jesus is discussing. However, there's an influx. There's something that's changed. There's something that's been added to this equation, and it's this topic of lust. 
And as we talk about this topic for a majority of our time here this morning, I want to tell you at the onset that my goal here is in no way to heap shame, to look down upon, or to treat this with any less significance and, and sensitivity than it deserves. Because when this topic is brought up, there's a whole host of emotions that quickly rush right next to it. And I also want us to say this and understand this and ask this of you. We must not confuse shame with godly conviction. Those two things are distinctly different. And there are times where we live in this place today where any negative emotion, we want to turn our back to it and run away. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to talk about it. And when it comes to something of godly conviction, we miss the opportunity to be grown in our character and in maturity in the Lord when we would turn our back on him. Hebrews 12 would tell us that God disciplines those whom he loves and that this, this would ultimately lead to the betterment of our relationship with Christ. And so as we talk about this today, even as we're sharing this today, maybe there's an ongoing dialogue in prayer between you and the Lord. Lord, is this shame or is this you? Is this you calling me to grow and submit more of my life to you? Or is this maybe the enemy or my inner critic coming at me here, making me feel like I'm not enough? But let us not mistake those two things as being the same. I also want to start by differentiating, differentiating the reality that, that I do not believe in any way that the scripture would, would articulate that all sexual desire is lustful. These two things are not equivalent. But often in the church world, they tend to be viewed perhaps as synonymous. And again, here's where I wish we had a lot more time because we could go into some scriptures and see in Genesis chapter two or the Song of Songs or 1 Corinthians chapter seven or many other places in scripture that it would seem as if God has designed us with some sort of sexual programming inside of us, that that would be a part of what it would mean to be human. But just like so many other instances in the Bible, where the emphasis is placed is what we choose to do with those desires is where we can either honor the Lord or rebel against him. That there would seem to be a significance to the Lord that he would have given us sexual desires intentionally and going back to the beginning of this conversation, that those are to be exercised within the covenant and safety of marriage. And that this would be something good but when we start to equate all lust to sexual desires, we start to become very confused and it can start to be very difficult to not walk in shame in every area of our life. So what then is lust? Lust literally means to long for something, to set my heart upon it or to covet it. It all of a sudden becomes the, the, the thing in which my heart and mind are set on above all else. And I think there's a story in the scriptures that displays the power of lust rather well. And it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and it's the story of David and Bathsheba. Many of us might be familiar with this story, and I'm only going to read a few verses here. And the word lust is never mentioned, but I want you to listen, and I want you to hear, and I want you to see if you can understand or guess where lust might capture the heart of David. It says in verse 2, 
One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. In verse one, it tells us that the time of year that this setting was in, David, the, the kings of Israel, including David, likely should have been out at war. So he, found, he finds himself in a place where, where at the beginning he probably shouldn't be, but alas, he finds himself here. It says that he's walking around the roof of the palace and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. In, in just a few short verses, I think we see the power that lust has on the human heart. It's never mentioned in this passage, but David goes from being on the rooftop and seeing a naked woman across the roof to the end of this story is he manipulates and sets up this incredible ploy to murder her husband. And that is the reality of lust. In a moment, it takes us and we open the door and we make one small compromise after another small compromise. And David sees this woman and instead of going, you know what, I'm just gonna turn around. I'm gonna walk away. He opens the door and he sends someone after her. And they come back and they tell him, hey, this is Bathsheba. And instead of turning away, he opens the door more and continues to open the possibility for what might be. And he says, why don't you go get her? And they bring her to him. And instead of turning away, he says, you know what? I'm going to give in to this desire. And then all of a sudden they sleep together. She becomes pregnant and David does everything he can to cover his tracks. And I'm convinced that if you could go back in time and stand on the rooftop with David before he sees her and says, hey, by the way, what you're about to do is gonna end in murder, he'd be like, there's no way. But we see that the reality, when we give in to setting our heart and our mind upon something, when we covet it, when we long for it, we often find ourselves in a place that we never thought we would be. We find ourselves doing something that we've told ourselves a million times we're done doing. But this is the power of lust. Why then is lust so problematic? I think this, the answer to this question, I think, depends on, on who you're listening to on this topic. Because culturally speaking, lust uh, is at worst considered neutral. And at best considered something very positive. Something to even cultivate and develop in your life. That the culture and sexuality today... Uh, it has become such a high value currency in the life of the individuals and that any restriction upon sex or sexuality or how it would be perceived outside of the presence of consent would be largely viewed as restrictive and oppressive and confining. But I think what we've seen in 2 Samuel and what I hope to develop over the next couple of minutes is a more broad understanding as we talk about this reality of lust. Because I'm convinced of this as well. Sex and sexuality and all that might, that might entail, that's being talked about. That, that's a conversation that is ongoing all of the time. And I know that bringing this up here in church, it might be like, woo, this is hitting a little too close for home. Can we go back to the good news of the gospel? I would like to feel really good about myself as I, as I leave this place. But man, I, I have just a strong sense of a burden that I would rather be uncomfortable for a little while 
and have the people of God be discipled in their sex and sexuality by the God's word as opposed to culture. And so we're going we're gonna to press in a little bit here this morning. And it is likely going to get uncomfortable. And again, I want to hearken back. My heart here is not to develop a culture of shame, but to inform so that our sex and our sexuality can be something that we celebrate with the Lord in the right context and in the right dynamics. Pastor J.R. Vassar has a statement. He says, sexuality is to our culture what wealth was to the rich young ruler. Sexuality is to our culture what wealth was to the rich young ruler. If you're not familiar with this story, it's found in Matthew chapter nine. And it's the story of a man coming to Jesus and he asks him this question, like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is it that I have to do to like really follow after you? And Jesus lists some of the commandments, some of the ones that we've seen already in this passage. He says like, don't kill anybody, don't steal. And this guy hears these and he says, I'm doing those. And he's excited. And then Jesus perceives who this man is and the things that have a grip on his heart. And he tells him, I want you to go and sell your possessions, give them to the poor and come and follow me. And the demeanor of this man changes. And it says that he becomes a bit downcast and he turns and walks away from Jesus because the thought of walking away from his possessions, something that's so significant to him in his life, in order to be totally yielded to the person of Jesus is too much for him to grasp. And this statement by Pastor JR, I think, bears the image of our obsession culturally with lust. That to think that we must somehow submit our sex and sexuality to the Lord in order to follow him might be almost too much for us to bear. And many of us might be crying out, Lord, we want intimacy with you. Lord, we want to grow deeper with you. Lord, we want to, to develop and cultivate this relationship. And he's saying, come, my child, and lay this down at the cross, for I have covered it. And many of us, our grip or its grip perhaps on us is too tight. And we might not find ourselves able. This is perhaps uh, one of the most staggering statistics that I've came across this week. And I think it, it at least speaks to this reality of lust and the sexuality that has a grip on our culture. According to some data collected by Fight the New Drug, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit dedicated to exposing the harmful impact of pornography, they have discovered that in 2019, over 6,500 centuries of pornography was consumed on the single largest porn site in one year. For those of us who might need a bit more development there, that's over 650,000 years worth of pornography or 5.7 billion hours on one porn site in one year. I'm also convinced that as soon as 2020 hit and that pandemic came, those numbers skyrocketed. 5.7 billion hours, 650,000 years. To me, this is a clear indicator that this topic of lust has such a grip on our culture today. It was consumed at a rate that is even hard to comprehend. And I believe the driver behind it is lust. 
lust and by extension, adultery. Again, that's the conversation that we're having here and we'll get to that reality in a moment. Lust and by extension, adultery are primary problems in God's economy because at a foundational level, they neglect the core commandment to love one another. Paul says as much in Romans chapter 13, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up by this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself, for love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So, so taking Paul's theology here, we must understand that one of the primary problems with lust is not only the way that it can captivate us, but in the way that it can turn other people into objects. In fact, one of the primary outcomes is this term of objectification. Perhaps you've heard of it. I know I've heard of it a lot, but I actually looked up the definition and I was like even startled a bit by how intense the definition was. It is the action of degrading someone to the state of a mere object. There is no way that we can actively love our neighbor if they appear as an object to us. We're incapable of that. Lust would tell us, what experience can I have? How can I take this thing, this object, this pornographic image, this pornographic video, whatever it is that we are lusting after, how can I take it and use it for my own pleasure? And if there's one thing I know about us humans, it's the moment that an object stops serving a purpose that we desire, we throw it away. It becomes very easy to discard, which again, rubs against the call of Christ to love. To treat someone in that capacity is failing to reach the marker and standard of Christ that we are called to love our neighbor. As I told you with some of those, that earlier statistics surrounding pornography, I think that, that the consumption and viewing of pornography is the primary outworking of lust today. I just wanna share a few more statistics with you that depending on where you look, the average age that a child is exposed to pornography is between 12 to 14. Now, this is not the first time that they've seen it. This is likely at least 90% of 12 to 14 year olds have been exposed to pornography at some point. According to Covenant Eyes, which is an organization who has developed software to help those who might find themselves in a battle with pornography, 56% of divorces involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Over half of the divorces that take place, at least part of the problem that exists there is because there is an addiction to the consumption of pornography. Fight the New Drug references a study reported by BBFC that says 75% of parents believe that their children have not encountered porn, yet of those children, over 53% had actually seen pornography. I don't have children, but parents in the room, I want to speak to you for a moment. It's time to have a conversation with your child. It's time, it's time to have that conversation. Because statistically, it's not a matter of if, it's when. And statistically, it's also probably happened at this point. 
And like I said, I don't have kids. My wife and I don't have kids. But my story, when I was five, I was sexually abused by a neighbor girl. And I discovered pornography shortly after that. And in no way is this statement uh, some sort of harboring of ill will towards my parents. They are incredible and have done everything within their power to raise me the way that they would desire. But they never had a conversation with me about that. And this was back in 96. So I think we're talking about a different time frame. This was when the primary way that you would see or consume pornography was through a magazine. And now Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, any social media that you go to, it's simply a click away. And looking back on those moments in my life as a five-year-old, you have no way to try to communicate what's happening there. And parents, it is on us, it is on you as parents and shepherds of your home to have these conversations. And will that result in uncomfort? More than likely. Yeah, it will. But let's not be dissuaded from following what God has called us into to raise a healthy home because we're afraid to be a bit uncomfortable. Because kids are hearing about sex. Kids are seeing pornography. That's the fact. That's the status quo. So how do we respond as followers of Jesus? We begin a dialogue, a conversation. We begin to equip our children. We begin to equip men and women who find themselves in bondage to this with understanding as to what's happening and how the blood of Christ might offer them hope in the current circumstance they find themselves in. Why I want to talk so much about pornography uh, in part is because it's a part of my story. When I was in my younger 20s, there was a season of probably four or five years where it was a daily battle in my life. And I've been in that world and I've been in that personally and I've been in that kind of circumstantially. And, and one of the things looking back on that time in my life that I am, I am so um, passionate about speaking to is the short-sighted view that we have when it comes to pornography. Often porn is viewed as the lesser of two evils. Maybe you're, you're single in here and you're like, well, you know what? I don't want to go sleep around with people, so I'm just going to watch porn. I'm going to masturbate. And that's kind of what it is. It's, it's not as bad as going and doing that. Or maybe you're dating somebody in here and you're like, you know what? I don't want to sleep or have sexual intercourse with my boyfriend or girlfriend, so we'll just watch porn and that's going to be what it is. Or, or maybe you're married and you're like, well, I'm not actually going to go out and have an affair, so I'll just watch pornography because it's not as bad. And I want to speak to that for a moment. Because I think there is a far greater picture to the realities that take place when we consume pornography than just, it's not as bad as this. There is a chemical reaction that happens in our bodies when we as humans are sexually aroused, and in particular, when we as humans reach climax or orgasm. There is something that happens in our body, and our bodies are flooded with a chemical cocktail. And one of those chemicals, again, just for the sake of time, we're just going to talk about one of them briefly, but I hope that you get the picture of extrapolating this across many different realities. One of those chemicals is called oxytocin. And this chemical of oxytocin has two primary points in the human experience where it is released in your body in high doses. It is childbirth and it is sexual arousal. And why this is released in these high volumes is oxytocin. It's like street name, if you will, as if it's some sort of like hard narcotic. It's called like the cuddle drug or the love drug. And oxytocin is intended to bond you with whomever that experience is taking place. 
as you do this study, it is, I don't know, I come to a place where I am more in awe of God, of the complexity that he has created our human bodies with. That during these natural times in the human experience, that when a woman would give birth to a child, her body naturally would be released and flooded with chemicals that are intended to bond her with her new infant. It's beautiful. And during heightened times of sexual arousal, our bodies would be flooded with this chemical as well because it is intended to begin to develop a pairing and a bonding with the other individual who we are encountering that sexual arousal with. John Gottman, he's largely considered a relationship guru. If you don't know him, he's got a lot of incredible content. He's discovered that it takes a 20-second hug or a six-second kiss for your body to start release oxytocin. That's all it takes. A 20 second hug or a six second kiss. So married people in here, uh, if you're like, man, I just want to connect a little bit, just try embracing each other for 20 seconds. Give each other a 20 second hug and you know you'll reach it because you're about 15 seconds past when you're like, okay, is this thing done yet? <laughs> then you get to the point where you're like, okay, this was 20 full seconds. But that's all it takes in order for our body to start being inundated with some of these chemicals. And as we engage in pornography consumption, I just wanna list a few of the realities that exist in light of some of this scientific evidence that they have discovered. One of the things that can take place is that we begin to develop what's called a false bonding. Again, as we're talking about this reality of this bonding agent called oxytocin, there's another one called vasopressin, and when these things interact with a few other things, it's really, really intended to help lay a foundation of connection. But our bodies can't distinguish between when we are aroused because of an individual relationship or when we are consuming pornography. And so instead of being bonded to an individual, what begins to develop inside of us is a bond to an experience. So when we feel threatened, when we feel anxious, when we feel down, when we feel sad, when we want a bit of a pick-me-up, rather than being drawn to individuals in relationship, we're drawn to the experience of pornography, which is why some of us in the room might find ourselves in a time or a season when we are going in just one direction, it's not on our mind, all of a sudden something happens to us in our day and we're craving it. It's because there's something being laid, a foundation being laid as we go through this motion. Our bodies are so incredible, and one of the things that they can do is begin to build up a tolerance to some of these chemicals released into the bloodstream. In other words, the initial kick of dopamine, of oxytocin, of vasopressin that we would get from sexual arousal, the more we engage in that, the more we need in order to experience the same sort of initial hit. So if we were to look at a graph of someone who is a habitual pornography consumer, it would not be a static line like this. It would go up. Because the reality exists that our bodies become tolerant to these chemicals being released and we need more. And not only do we need more in the terms of time consumption, often what that leads to is new novel experiences. Which is why I'm convinced that this lust conversation would lead to something like adultery. Because we'd start with saying it's just a look. And as David did, it's just a look. It would breed the opportunity for more and more and more and more. And all of a sudden, we'd find ourselves in a place going, I never wanted to be here. I, I never said I'd do this again. Yet that might be where we would find ourselves. The last thing that can happen when it comes to some of these chemicals reality is that there's been some studies done 
that have taken brain scans of those who are actively on cocaine, or, uh, as well as brain, stand, brain scans for those who uh, might be alcoholics. And they put them side by side with someone who's actively consuming pornography, and the brain is lighting up in the exact same way. The consistent and habitual pornography use can lead to addiction in the same way that we would see that impacting the body if it was a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction. Pornography consumption can have real lasting impact on our biological state and on our minds. I think another lie that we believe when it comes to pornography is it's not hurting anyone else. And this might be the most uncomfortable of all the situations to discuss. Because where porn goes, sex abuse and sex trafficking will follow. That is just a reality. Now, I'm not saying every image that you'd see or every video that you'd see would, would contain this, but what I'm saying is as you would press in, it is shocking and jarring to see how much these two things go hand in hand. The largest porn site in the world, Pornhub, this is all within the last 10 months. 10.6 million videos have been taken down because of their connection to sex trafficking. 30 million images have been taken down. They've been sued by over 257 victims in 10 different lawsuits, totaling billions in potential damages. And a report came out last month, and if you're following what's happening around Pornhub, it seems as if one of these reports comes out nearly every month, if not multiple a month. September, a report came out that confirmed that a 15-year-old girl who had been missing for a year was found in 58 different videos on this website that they monetized, that they sold as pay-to-download content, and that the company profited over 35% on every time one of those videos was consumed. This is the reality that exists. Where pornography goes, sex abuse and sex trafficking will follow. I am convinced that there's no such thing as moral porn. It just doesn't add up in God's economy. It's not something that makes sense when you follow Christ. I wanna to speak to a few audiences perhaps in the room. Maybe you're single here this, this morning and you're asking the question, well, how does pornography impact me? Like I, I'm not necessarily cheating on, on anyone. I'm not engaging in that sort of reality. Like how does this impact me? And I think to you, what I would say is that often we view ourselves in terms of two distinct people, who I am now, and who I will be in the future. And we might lie to ourselves and begin to tell ourselves, well, you know what? At some point in my life as I'm married, this outlet for my sexual desire will have a healthy place. So when I get there, I'll flip this switch and I'll engage in this and we'll be good. But here's the problem. What we're doing when we would consume pornography is on the far other end of the spectrum compared to what Christ would call us to do as husband and wife in self-sacrificial lovemaking. These two things are not the same. And we begin to sow seeds of discontentment and our sexual desire, we feed it, we take it to the golden corral and it can have whatever it wants, whenever it wants. The buffet is endless. And then we enter into a lifelong commitment and age happens and, and, and weight transformations happen and having kids happens, and bodies look different, and sex drives go up and down over the course of our life, and we've all of a sudden laid seed early on in our life where it is I can have what I want when I want, 
And we will have to reap that fruit at some point. Maybe you're dating in the room and you're going, yeah, okay, well, but my boyfriend, my girlfriend, we're, we're engaging in, in, in sexual encounters before marriage. And, and hear me say this, uh, there is more to sexual encounters than just sexual intercourse. Oral sex, we're talking about that. Mutual masturbation, we're talking about that. Is anyone uncomfortable yet? Feel free to raise your hand. <laughs> we're going, well, look, we're gonna be married. Maybe, maybe. And, and if that's the case, praise God. But I can tell you confidently that with my wife, Jenna, I have never thought once in our almost, well, I guess two and a half years, not quite three years of marriage, I've never thought to myself once, I wish we would have been more sexually active when we were dating. I wish we would have pushed the boundaries of what sexual stewardship would have looked like in that season of our life way more than we did. But I have thought, man, if I could go back and take back the times where I did not practice discipline with the Lord, I would. I've had that ping of regret, but never once have I had that thought of, I wish we would have done a lot more. And the other reality exists. And again, I, I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but you might not make it. You, you might not make it. And if that's the case, you're setting yourself up for an incredibly difficult and much more painful and confusing time of your life than would ever need to be had. And the same goes for pornography consumption. Well, you know what, if I'm just consuming porn and we're not actually being physical with each other, we're laying the same type of seed. Don't listen to the lie that somehow it's the lesser of two evils as if that means that it doesn't have natural consequences, it does. If you're married here in the room and you're going, yeah, well, Tucker, you don't know what it's like to be in this marriage and this is the only outlet I have. I don't know what it's like and you're right, I don't. But I can tell you convincingly that this is the very topic that Jesus is talking about. That we, we might fall into the mindset of thinking, well, you know what? I haven't murdered anybody, so that's great. You know what? I haven't actually gone and cheated on my spouse to which Jesus responds in a way that is so humbling. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And there is no way that you're gonna sit here and tell me that you're consuming, you're actively consuming pornography and that lust isn't present. It's just not the reality of what's happening here. And I think if we're honest, when it comes to major actions like committing adultery, or even as Jesus spoke about earlier, murder, no one wakes up and in a moment goes, I'm gonna go cheat on my spouse today. That comes from a hundred small compromises. Like we saw with David. He's not up on the roof thinking, I'm gonna kill this woman's husband. But all of a sudden, one thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing, leads to another thing, and you find yourself in a place where you're going, how did I get here? And it's because lust has captured our heart. I wanna look at these last few verses here, and I know we're pressing time here, and I'm gonna to try to wrap up as quick as I can, I promise, but this topic is one that we need to discuss. In verse 29, it says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body going to hell. This is an example of Jesus using what's called hyperbolic language or hyperbole. In other words, I don't believe Jesus is advocating that we all become a bunch of like stump armed eye patch Christians. 
I don't think he's after like a pirate army in church. So what is he saying? Because he's saying something. He's saying whatever measure you need to go to in order to ensure that this does not capture you, do it. If you have to gouge out your eye, so be it, because it's better to only have one than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If you need to get rid of your left or your right hand, so be it. And we need to be honest with ourselves this morning. What is Christ calling us to do about this? Because it's not as if this is only like available in some dark internet corner with the, those days are so far gone. It's everywhere. And our response is what we need to be asking the Lord. How can he cultivate us? How can he develop us? What is it that he is calling us to do in order to not fall captive to the reality of this sin? And again, we just, I'm just speaking this from a place of honesty. I have had so many coffee appointments with men who recognize that this is an issue in their life and yet aren't willing to even sleep with their phone out in the living room instead of their bedroom. And here Jesus is calling us to gouge out our eyes and some of us might even be unwilling for a moment, for a season to say, you know what? The amount that I'm consuming my phone and the digital content is unhealthy. I need to set up parameters. I have had the privilege of being in the battle going through this with some men. And, and when you're in the battle, you know it because things start to happen. All of a sudden you get a dumb phone instead of a smartphone. Why? Because the calling of Christ to be righteous wins out. All of a sudden you start taking your doors off of your bedroom because you're like, hey, look, there is a reality that exists here that right now when my girlfriend's over here and we go into that bedroom, I know what happens. You know what makes it a lot harder? When the door's gone. It's not impossible, but you gotta be bold. Are we willing to go to the measures that Jesus is calling us to in order to not fall victim to this harsh reality that lust captures our heart and moves us away from Christ and we find ourselves in places that we never imagined? We must ask ourselves this question. Ben, you guys can come up. Again, I know that this is likely uncomfortable and I know that maybe some of us are kind of shocked that this is like, is this church? I'm not sure if this is church. This doesn't feel like church. <laughs> but if you find yourself in a moment and you're hearing this and the Lord is bringing that sense of conviction, if you're a parent in the room and you feel hopeless, I don't know how we could end today by other than looking at the gospel of Jesus. What other hope do we have? Luke tells us in his gospel, as Jesus would, would say these words, that things which are impossible with men are possible with God. And I don't know about you, but boy, am I grateful to hear that good news. Man, it seems impossible to keep my kid safe from the, the threat that this is. Man, it seems impossible to walk that back in our relationship. Man, it seems impossible to not go and consume that thing online. The good news is that things that seem possible, impossible for you are, are possible with God. Even on a scientific level, there's been some incredible developments in the area of neuroscience that have shown us that there are these, this incredible reality in our brain called neuroplasticity. 
which is essentially our brain's ability to create new neural pathways and new ways of thinking, which lines up with what scripture says. It's good news that we aren't bound to this track that we've made to be made in our mind over the course of a year or two or three or four years that by God's grace and how he has hardwired us as humans, that we are not bound by those things. And more than just a scientific level, there's the spiritual reality of the gospel of Jesus. That Jesus would have made an atoning sacrifice for you and I. That his blood, the blood that was shed as Christ hung on the cross in agony, this blood covers the charge of our guilt and has moved us from death to life. This blood of Jesus has taken us from being a rebel to being a child. It's delivered us victory over sin and death that would know, there would be no way for us to accomplish it through any other means than the blood of Christ. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins and in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness for by his wounds you have been healed. And I don't find a single passage in scripture that says by his wounds you are healed unless, unless you viewed porn, unless you slept with your boyfriend. There's no caveat or statement here attached. It is the blood of Christ offers forgiveness for sins once and for all, period, end of sentence. Come all you who are thirsty and heavy laden. That's the gospel of Jesus. And in a topic and in a moment like this, where there is so much opportunity to go astray from the path of Christ, I am beyond grateful that we have a savior who says my blood has covered it all past, present, future. It is by my blood that you have achieved the power to choose righteousness instead of sin. The good news of the gospel would tell us that there is hope. If you find yourself in a season, in a time where pornography consumption is habitual and perhaps an addiction in your life, let me speak a word of hope to you. It's Jesus. If you're battling with your boyfriend, with your girlfriend, going out and hooking up down at the bars and the thought of having that be removed from your life, I know that that's hard, but there's hope for that. And it's Jesus. If your marriage feels like it's crumbling in part because the high volume of pornography or sexual misconduct that's happening in the dynamic of that marriage, I know that it's hard and there's hope and its name's Jesus. This is the beauty of his gospel. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask the band to keep playing here. And I know that this is about the time that we would normally dismiss, but again, I don't want to miss an opportunity here. And so I'm going to ask the prayer team to come up front and I'm going to come up front. And what I've been praying for all week is that the Lord would sweep through this time with confession, with repentance and with healing. And again, I know that we might be shattering all sorts of stereotypes about church right now, where it's like, you want me to confess my sexual sin to somebody who I'm sitting next to? If you feel so bold, yes, I do want that. Because guys, this 
is the reality that we're living in. We can pretend like it's not that big of a deal. We can pretend like it doesn't have the impact on us that it does, but, but this is the reality that we're living in. And from the very beginning, God has given his people this command of do not commit adultery. And as I hope we've seen today, lust often gives way to that reality. And in that giving of the command, he's saying, this is one of the things that I want for my people, for them to be set apart from culture. And what a time for us to demonstrate the holiness of God. Then today, to be a people marked, not by judgment, not to say we're better than anyone, but to say that, no, 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 we believe God has called us to a better way. So if you have a buddy here, I'm asking you to bring this to the light. Let them know. Hey man, I'm struggling. Maybe if you're dating and your significant other's here, maybe this is a time where you guys might have a dialogue. If you're married, again, I know that this might not be the time to do some of those things, but if it is, don't back away. And this isn't some sort of Catholic confessional up here where it says, okay, in order for you to actually be forgiven, you need to come up here in order to repent for your sins. You can do that exactly where you are. We just believe that the scriptures also speak to the reality that when we confess our sins to one another, that we may be healed. And that scripture will also declare that, that if we are faithful to confess those sins, that God is faithful to forgive us of those things. So if you're alone in this, or if you don't know who to ask or talk to, there is gonna be a whole roll of people up here that we would love just to hear you, to pray for you, and to remind you that the blood of Christ has covered you and that you are a beautiful bride washed clean by the blood of Jesus. There's some resources that I'm just gonna throw up on here in the back screen. And uh, these are some resources of, if you're interested in learning more about some of this, if you're interested in your in bondage, there's some great resources up here uh, that I'd be happy to talk to. I know that that might be uncomfortable for you, but feel free to find me and we can have a dialogue. I'd love to sit down and talk more about this with you, but I'm gonna zip it now and uh, just ask for the Lord to come.